Welcome to the Conscious Mental Health Podcast for mental health professionals who are always learning. The Conscious Mental Health Podcast is a series of diverse educational resources for mental health professionals sponsored by the Academy of Integrative Mental Health. The Academy expands knowledge to professionals in the mental health community and beyond using a conscious, experiential, and evidence-based format. Our mission is to deliver comprehensive health and wellness to all by empowering personal and professional growth and confidence. We believe continuing education is an essential aspect of mental health care that is ever evolving and changing, just like the communities we serve. The CMH podcast is part of our efforts to increase access to modern experiential knowledge across all stages of a clinician's career. We share engaging conversations with skilled therapists, multidisciplinary experts, and advocates committed to thinking outside the box using an integrative approach. Our episodes are similar to our training style in that you receive research-informed content and guided practices, news updates, and other segments to support you in your personal and clinical practice. This podcast is intended to provide information as a resource and is not a substitute for mental health treatment, medical advice, or professional training. And the statements and views shared by the guest are their own. I'm Juniper Owens, Director of the Academy of Integrative Mental Health and also one of the hosts for the Conscious Mental Health Podcast. And every month, We collect some of the best, most up-to-date information so you don't have to in our mental health news update segment. And this month, we've got a lot of great information and stories for you. So for example, our research review will break down a study that looked at the distorted time perception and memory lapses after the COVID-19 pandemic. In the headlines, we discuss the life and death of Stephen Twitch Boss in the public eye. Our advocacy alert shares updated information and resources about abortion access. And our Did You Know segment, we talk about a disturbing sleep event called the exploding head syndrome. So you you definitely want to check these out and stay up to date. Let's get started. So in this research review, we broke down a study that looked at distorted time perception and memory lapses after the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of my clients reported that they had no idea where the year went or felt like the pandemic and everything that happened, like the social justice movements all over the country and the election and political upheaval and just all the violence that occurred in 2020 felt like a dream. Yet others described it like lasting forever. And it was just yesterday. Ruth Ogden, a Liverpool John Moores University psychologist and co-author Andrea Piovesen, looked at the well-documented consequences of the societal changes resulting from the COVID-19 global pandemic, one of them being a change in the experience of the passage of time. The gap between the scientific understanding of time and our everyday understanding of time has troubled thinkers throughout history. According to theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli, time is an illusion. Our naive perception of its flow doesn't correspond to physical reality. What is time? A deceptively simple question, yet it is the key to understanding relativity. It is also the reason my hair is going gray. (laughs) When we describe motion, we do so as a function of time. 10 meters per second, 100 miles per hour. But the mathematical description of velocity is moot unless we can define 
time. Is time universal? In other words, is there an audible tick-tock throughout the galaxy? A master clock, so to speak, forging ahead like Mozart's metronome? The answer, my friends, is no. Time is not absolute. In fact, for us believing physicists, the distinction between the past, present, and future is but a stubborn illusion. While we might not be able to dive into the theories of quantum physics right now, we can observe how humans experience time in their brains and bodies. The global pandemic gave us a great opportunity. Studies conducted in the UK, France, Italy, Argentina, Brazil, Iraq, and Uruguay, as well as a Europe-wide study, have all demonstrated that during the pandemic, people experienced significant distortions to the speed at which time was passing in comparison with before the pandemic. So, for example, in France and Italy, citizens reported a slowing of the passage of time during the first weeks and months of the pandemic, when social and physical distancing measures were enforced to reduce the spread of the virus. During a similar time, 80% of British people reported experiencing distortion to the passage of time, with 40 reporting time was passing more quickly than normal, and 40% reporting that time was passing more slowly than normal, so about half and half. A general slowing of the passage of time was also reported in Iraq 11 months into the pandemic during a period of minimal social and physical restrictions. In Brazil, the pandemic was associated with an increased sense of time expansion and a reduction in time pressure. In Argentina, however, there was a tendency for people to experience an acceleration of time during the pandemic as compared to before. Despite some cross-cultural differences in the directionality of distortions to the passage of time during the pandemic, where the time was either slowing down or speeding up, there were some similarities across the countries and cultures included in the study. In general, negative affect, which is the subjective feelings like hopelessness, anxiety, or guilt, was associated with a slowing of the passage of time, and positive affect subjective experiences of joy, happiness, or interest were associated with a relative speeding up of the passage of time. Side note, using adjectives like positive or negative outside of research or scholarly language can be problematic as feelings and states of being are normal for humans. When we add qualifiers like positive and negative, we create resistance to the flow of those feeling states, but that's neither here nor there. Back to the story. For example, trauma is associated with slowing the passage of time, which results in a subjective elongation of the duration of the period of trauma. This lengthening is thought to reinforce trauma and impair healing or integration of the experience. Similarly, the subjective lengthening of memories for the duration of the pandemic may also make the pandemic seem more recent than it actually was which may result in the feeling of temporal vertigo in which an individual feels lost in their timeline of past, present, and future. And that's a new term to me, temporal vertigo. It is therefore important to establish how the length of the pandemic is remembered and how this varies between individuals over time. Here, Peter Levine Levine discusses more about how trauma affects memory. But I think trauma affects every 
kind of memory. I mean, there's the, the classical work that was done, you know, on the hippocampus, where when you're in a traumatic state, the hippocampus gets inhibited. And if it's chronic, it actually shrinks. So that's about short-term memory. So a person who's traumatized generally has trouble with short-term memory. And, you know, when, when you're talking to a person and, and you start to notice that, then you're very likely to suspect that there's trauma. It affects emotional memory by giving uh, uh, tr triggers to, to these adverse emotions. And it affects episodic memory, autobiographical memory, by kind of shutting it out and by shutting it out, taking away the direction in our lives. Many people also reported changes in memory since the pandemic, as well as time distortions. Medical research around brain fog, memory, and attention lapses are somewhat attributed to physical manifestations of the virus, actual virus. However, people that did not contract the virus also reported similar issues with brain fog and or memory distortion. There are many theories about how the brain processes memories and time in relation to environmental factors, especially traumatic events. Some research shows that trauma memory distortion follows a pattern. People tend to remember more trauma than they experienced, and those who do tend to exhibit more of the re-experiencing symptoms associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. After a traumatic experience, intentional remembering, or also called effortful retrieval, and unintentional remembering, also called intrusive mental imagery, can introduce new details that over time assimilate into a person's memory of the event. Given these significant changes in daily life, it is plausible the memories for the length of the pandemic may be significantly distorted by the events that occurred and how the individual perceived these events. For example, social satisfaction, positive mood, and busyness were associated with time passing more quickly than normal. Day-to-day -day experience of the time during the pandemic was therefore heavily affected by the emotional and social consequences of the measures put in place to reduce transmission by each country. The results underscore just how variable our sense of time can be. It can be altered by emotion, social satisfaction, stress, mental engagement, and our culture. In Iraq, for example, people surveyed almost universally felt that time slowed, but half of the UK respondents who experienced time distortion felt that it moved faster than in what we've come to think of as the before times. In Argentina, younger, physically active women felt time passed faster than older men. Ogden says it's hard to pinpoint the root cause of these differences because there's so many dependent variables. Living in a war-torn area or under strict lockdown policies could help, help explain some differences in each country. When life changes, time changes, Ogden says. When life changes, time changes. How our emotions such as fear influence our sense of time is a complex process that science only partially understands, says Ed Miyawaki, a Harvard neurologist. There is not a single place in the brain involved in timekeeping, but several. One place near the optic nerve tracks time, for example, which is how people sense time by day and of time of day by daylight. Dopamine-rich networks in the brain teach us to anticipate rewards, he says, and the cerebellum, which allows us to time our movements, also has its own kind of clock. So there's an emotional clock, there's a memory clock, there's all these kinds of clocks, Miyawaki says. However, they aren't particularly synchronized. The brain has no master clock. 
There's just a complex interplay among our senses that act on our perception of time. That's partly what gives variability to our sense of time. Why new experiences like traveling to a foreign land seem to stretch the day out or why hours seem to vaporize for a kid engrossed in a video game. After decades of research, he says, he concludes our sense of time comes from something beyond the brain. The question is not just one of science, but also of psychology, sociology, philosophy, he says. It has to do with so much more than what the dopamine neurons are doing. That resonates with Ruth Ogden, who said the pandemic alerted many of us to time's relationship to our sense of health and well-being. In fact, it seemed to call attention to time and perception of reality itself. People often assume that our senses allow us to perceive the world as it actually is. However, what we perceive is not an accurate reflection of a real, externally existing world. In fact, perception and hallucination have a lot in common. Both depend on our brain's interpretation of noisy and ambiguous sensory signals. You could say that we're all hallucinating all the time, and when we agree about our hallucinations, that's what we call reality. Most of the time, we don't question the reality of our perceptions, since most of the time, they seem real enough, and we all seem to perceive the same things. But sometimes this consensus breaks down dramatically, begging the question, what is real? The information discussed in the study could help you and your clients have a better understanding of their experience of time and memory during and after the pandemic. While understanding something does not necessarily change it, there is great benefit in knowing that your brain and body respond in ways that make sense for each individual when exposed to environmental stimuli and changes. Each person will have a different experience based on many factors. Once the experience is accepted, the client can move to work with what is happening in the present rather than trying to fix something they perceive is wrong with them or faulty. This happens quite a bit when people compare their experiences with another person. What has been your experience? Has it been different from your clients or colleagues? Was your perception of time slowed or sped up or anything in, anywhere in between? Has your perception of time been distressing to you or your memory? These are all great questions to ask yourself and to uh, talk to your clients about if it's distressing to them. Headlines, uh, content warning, this story does discuss suicide. Stephen Twitch bosses life and death in the public eye. After Stephen Twitch boss died by suicide, fans have struggled to reconcile his vibrant persona with someone who would die by suicide. Gregarious, Joyful and full of life are just a few of the sentiments that people close to Stephen have shared about him following his death at age 40. His bright smile and always dancing legs may come to mind for people who knew him through TV and phone screens. Twitch was best known as a contestant, judge, and choreographer on the television series So You Think You Can Dance, and also an executive producer and DJ on The Ellen Show. You could find him dancing with his wife, who he also met on So You Think You Can Dance, and children beloved by his almost 4 million social media followers and subscribers. Social media users and media outlets in general echoed the sentiments similar to this Twitter user, quote, prayers for Twitch's wife and kids. Always check on your strong friends. High functioning depression is real. Rest in paradise, end quote. 
Jesse Gold, assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University, is skeptical of the term high-functioning depression that some on social media and the press have assigned to Twitch's state of mind at the time he died by suicide. This is a pop culture reference typically associated with someone who masked their depressive symptoms with an outgoing personality, driving ambition, and or perfectionism. As Gold explained it, high-functioning depression is an oversimplified label for someone who seems able to manage well in life, yet beneath the surface, they live with depression. It is not a technical diagnosis, diagnosis she said. What people may be referring to is what is clinically known in the DSM-5 as dysthymia, or persistent depressive disorder, Gold said. PDD is a long-term chronic form of depression characterized by a low mood that lasts for at least two years. Quote, people going through this kind of depression have a change in sleep, change in interest, change in mood, change in appetite, and intermittent suicidal thoughts, Gold said. They probably can't tell you the last time they felt good. It is also important not to minimize what a person is going through, Gold said. That is why she discourages referring to someone with depression as, quote, high functioning. She says, I think it implies that people's problems aren't so bad. Just because someone goes to work every day, performs their job well, doesn't mean that they aren't going through something. Many prominent black people have died by suicide this year, several of them within one week in January. Ian Alexander Jr., actor Regina King's only child, died January 21st at the age of 26. Kevin Ward, 44, mayor of Hyattsville, Maryland, died January 25th. The Walking Dead actor Moses Mosley died January 26 at age 31 and former Miss USA and attorney Chesley Christ died January 30th at age 30. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, we've seen an increase in suicide in the black community. And what the data shows is that black men specifically are three to four times more likely than black women to actually engage in suicide. And so it is a serious concern that we need to address. Why is that? Well, I think one of the, the issues that we know is that um, men oftentimes, and, and specifically black men, are less likely to seek mental health services. And so there is a, a strong reliance on doing things yourself. Uh, we have concerns around sort of emotional vulnerability, and that oftentimes uh, prevents men from seeking the help that they need, which puts them at a much higher risk of engaging in suicidal behavior. Dr. Stevenson, what factors do, do black men face that may be different than their white counterparts causing the number of deaths that we are seeing and talking about by suicide? Well, one, one factor is the stigma of um, admitting that one is struggling or lonely or depressed or having sad thoughts or worrying about uh, their future. Uh, the host of things that we know that are so, associated with depression and then other folks sort of decisions to choose to use suicide as a means to deal with it are harder for black men because the stigma is so great. And so admitting uh, as a man that you are struggling uh, is a big factor. And culturally, we haven't always been supportive of, as a community to be that vulnerable as men. April Simpkins, mother of Chelsea Christ, said her daughter had persistent depressive disorder and had attempted suicide before. Simpkins stresses that public figures are not immune to suicidal thoughts, no matter how bubbly they may appear. She said, 
When you have someone who is an achiever and who does enjoy life, it is very easy for the general public to assume that they must be okay and that they couldn't possibly be hiding something. She told today.com. How could you hide something behind a smile that is so genuine? But I think it's important to realize that the general public is not with those people 24 seven. And what you are seeing is what they are presenting in that moment at that time. She goes on to say, when I hear people saying, check on your strong friends, which has become a very common mantra along with it's okay not to be okay. I think what gets dismissed is that if you have strong friends who are telling you that they're not okay, we don't know how to listen. Simpkin says, we're waiting for a five alarm fire and they're telling us it's smoldering. Then we miss it because we dismissed it. It's important for therapists to be aware of what information people are being exposed to about topics around depression, anxiety, and suicide. We can support accurate information and offer some myth busting around suicide prevention and treatment as well as stigma. Simpkins makes a wonderful point that just checking on your friends is not enough to prevent suicide. We need to know how to listen and how to be with and provide support to the people we love. Also to advocate for more social supports and institutional change that provides safe, affordable, and compassionate help for vulnerable in individuals. Resources in the show notes. So for today's advocacy alert, we talk about an update on abortion access and how to offer resources to your clients. Most abortions are now banned in at least 13 states as laws restricting the procedure took effect following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. These, those states are Idaho, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. Georgia also bans abortion at about six weeks before many women know they are pregnant. So what are the options and resources that are available to clients in states with abortion bans or limited access? First, let's talk about medical abortion, aka abortion pills. Abortion pills can be accessed from many Planned Parenthood centers, some private doctors and gynecologists, family planning clinics, and abortion clinics as well. Depending on where you live, there may be restrictions if you're 17 years old or younger or waiting periods to get an abortion. The abortion pill is actually five pills taken one or two days apart. Abortion with pills is common in the United States. More than 54% of abortions are done with pills. It's even more common worldwide. In some European countries, up to 90% of abortions are done using pills. Abortion pills have been FDA approved for more than 20 years, and they are safer or just as safe as taking Tylenol. Finding and taking abortion pills to end a pregnancy without the help of a doctor or nurse is called the self-managed abortion, which some people call an at-home abortion. Research shows that self-managing an abortion with abortion pills can be safe and effective, it is important to have a medical consult before taking the abortion pill. After taking abortion pills, it's normal to have fever, chills, nausea, strong cramping, and heavy bleeding for a day. If there are symptoms that are worrisome, like soaking more than two maxi pads in an hour or more than two hours in a row, heavy bleeding for several days that causes dizziness, chills, and or fever lasting more than 24 hours, it's recommended to go to an emergency room. Emergency doctors and nurses can provide treatment whether or not they know about a self-managed abortion. In fact, the symptoms after taking abortion pills are the same as a miscarriage. That information should make no difference in the treatment. There may be legal risks to buying the pills outside of the healthcare system. Uh, to learn more, check out 
reprolegalhelpline.org. And that will be in the show notes. That is a really great resource that talks all about the legality of buying and taking pills outside of the healthcare system. And there's all kinds of um, really great supports like a, a helpline and all that stuff. So next, the other option is to travel out of state for an abortion. For many Americans, the costs and logistical challenges of getting to an abortion provider are primary barriers to access, and it's only getting harder. One organization, the Bridget Alliance, books, coordinates, and pays for travel, travel expenses, and child care, serving as a single trusted point of contact for every step of the journey. Wherever someone needs to get to an abortion care in the United States, they will find a way to get them there through direct support and in collaboration with their network of partners. The Bridget Alliance is a referral-based service that provides people seeking abortions with travel, food, lodging, child care, and other logistical support. The referral must come from a partner clinic in which the person seeking an abortion must contact and ask for the referral. They will send the Bridget Alliance a referral, and one of their coordinators will contact the person for a confidential conversation within 24 to 48 hours. It is encouraged to contact the clinic of your choice as soon as they can. The clinics that they work with are in Washington, D.C., New York, Queens, New Mexico, New Jersey, upstate New York, and Colorado. There are also state-specific organizations that help support costs like the Chicago Abortion Fund, and it's recommended to become familiar with your state's laws, regulations, and local resources. Another great support are hotlines. So there are hotlines for support, resources. One of them is the National Abortion Federation, whose mission is to unite, represent, serve, and support abortion providers in delivering patient-centered, evidence-based care, and it has helped establish the National Abortion Hotline. My name is Kathy and Jimmy, and I've had an abortion. I had an abortion. I had an abortion. Having an abortion was the right decision for me. Because I had a very dysfunctional family. Because it saved my life. I had an IUD and I got pregnant. I was seven weeks with twins. I had to drive over 50 miles. I was living in a dorm room. That I may not have made it through this pregnancy alive. The finances just weren't there. I was working two jobs, I had no money, I was in no position to be a mother. After my abortion, I felt great relief. It was my decision. There are people out there who want to help you. Abortion is health care. I'm an ordained minister and I fully believe in choice. For me, abortion was the right call because, 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 because. Whatever your reason, it's your call. No matter where you live, the National Abortion Hotline can help you plan a safe, legal abortion seven days a week. The National Abortion Hotline is the largest national toll-free multilingual hotline for abortion provider information and financial assistance in the U.S. and Canada. They provide callers with accurate information, confidential consultation, and information on providers of quality abortion care. They also provide case management services and limited financial assistance to help with the cost and care of travel-related expenses. The hotline is free and offers services to everyone regardless of individual situations. The number is 1-800-772-9100, or there's also a chat option on the homepage. So links to all this information discussed will be in the show notes, as well as other resources. Lastly, did you know? Did you know that exploding head syndrome, 
is a type of sleep disorder in which you hear a loud noise or explosive crashing sound in your head. The sound isn't real or heard by anyone else. The episode typically happens suddenly, either when you're beginning to fall asleep or when you wake up during the night. Along with the loud sound, EHS can also occur with flashes of light and muscle, muscle jerks. Unlike its painful sounding name, the episode is generally painless. Exploding head syndrome is a parasomnia, which is an undesired event that happens while sleeping. It's also called episodic cranial sensory shocks. Researchers don't know how many people have exploding head syndrome. It's more common in females. EHS can happen to persons of all ages. Some 16% of college students reported EHS according to the results of one study. In most cases, researchers don't know what might trigger exploding head syndrome episodes. Some people report that feeling stressed or tired might have led to their episodes, which usually last about a second. Signs and symptoms of exploding head syndrome include feeling frightened or anxious after the episode, experiencing a sudden muscle jerk at the time of the episode, having difficulty falling back to sleep, waking up sweating, having a rapid heartbeat, and or trouble breathing. You typically don't experience physical pain with EHS. Most individuals who experience exploding head syndrome describe it as an explosion in their head or hearing sounds like gunshots, thunder, or another very loud noise. There is no treatment at this time for EHS. It might be helpful to offer relaxation techniques or something similar to assist a person who finds this experience distressing or it, it causing disturbances in their sleep. Right about wraps up our mental health news updates for the months of December and January. Hey, if you find this information valuable, please like and subscribe to whatever platform that you're listening and or watching this podcast. It really means a lot to us because it does take quite a bit of time to research, record and edit all this information, but we really hope that it's valuable so you don't have to spend the time doing it. So any any help or support or comments that you provide are totally valuable and we appreciate it. Uh, all the information's in the show notes, including how to reach us. Uh, you can email or you can record a edit audible or you record a voicemail. Yeah, that's it. Speak pipe. You can record a voicemail. So, all right. I'm tired because I've been trying to record this all day. Okay. Thank you all. Peace.